By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks, Focus on Finance. In today's episode, I'll be talking to insurance analyst Laura Baser about the effects of long COVID on life insurers globally. Later on, it's now two months after the initial Russian invasion of Ukraine, and my co-host Miles Nelligan in London will sit down with financial institutions analysts Olivier Panis in Paris, Bernhard Held in Frankfurt, and Antonello Aquino in London to talk about what a longer military conflict in Ukraine means for specific sectors within banking and insurance. They'll look at which sectors are most exposed and least exposed to the more prolonged conflict, which has led to tragic loss of life and widespread destruction of property and infrastructure. Their analysis considers both Moody's baseline economic scenario and also a downside scenario in which There's a sharp halt to oil and gas exports from Russia to Europe, coupled with severe global recession. So more on that in just a few minutes. But first, I'm joined by Laura Baser in New York to talk about long COVID and life insurers. Laura, welcome back to Focus on Finance. Hi, Danielle. Glad to be here. So, Laura, just briefly, what is long COVID? How do you define it? Well, there's no single universally accepted definition of long COVID, uh, unfortunately, but generally speaking, it's the medical consequences of having had COVID-19 after the initial virus has receded. And the symptoms include things like respiratory difficulties, extreme fatigue, muscle weakness, difficulty concentrating, and brain fog, and, and things like loss of smell and taste and so on. There's at least 200 of these symptoms, and they can go on for six months or longer. And and all kinds of people suffer from them. For example, some U.S. studies have found that up to one-third of long COVID sufferers have never actually been hospitalized, and some have been completely asymptomatic. There's another large global survey that found that long COVID affected 50% of COVID survivors in the study. So that's a lot. 50% is, that is really a lot. Now, you know, many of the medical issues, though, arising from long COVID are going to turn into claims for health insurers rather than life insurers, right? But your report looks at life insurers globally. So how does long COVID affect life insurers in particular? Well, it affects them through their morbidity products. And these are policies for things like illness, like when you're unable to work, as opposed to mortality products, which pay a benefit when typically the policyholder dies. It's, it's basically life insurance. And in the U.S. in particular, and also EMEA, um, this would include um, what's called income replacement products, um, known more familiarly as um, disability income policies. So people out sick with COVID and unable to work would typically receive some sort of short-term disability if they're employed uh, from an employer. Um, in Asia, short-term indemnity medical policies are, are the ones that, that tend to be affected. Now, what about some indirect effects of long COVID? I think your report talks about the possibility that there will be a higher rate of death or mortality because of long COVID. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, many people who were shut in for, you know, the, the worst months of the pandemic were unable to get to doctor's appointments. And now that they're getting themselves examined, some of the diagnoses uh, are coming in for more serious illness and disease than, you know, they might have gotten if they had gone earlier to the doctor. And unfortunately, this could result in accelerated deaths. Long COVID itself, if it attacks the organs, could also worsen mortality down the road. Okay. And just to understand the scope of the problem, how much is this going to affect life insurers? Well, we still have a lot to learn about long COVID, so it's hard to predict outcomes at this point in time. According to the WHO, the World Health Organization, there are just under 500 million people outside of China who've survived COVID-19 through last week. And as I noted, um, a relatively high percentage of them could be affected. But the credit impact for life insurers is likely to be limited, and that's for a number of reasons. First, not all of these people are going to be insured. And second, global life insurers themselves have a lot of protections, things like good business diversification, strong capital levels, and products that are themselves designed to minimize losses, like long waiting periods before you can use a long-term disability policy. And there are also new treatments for both COVID and long COVID coming out pretty much weekly. So the future for at least tamping down this virus looks much brighter now than two years ago. Laura, thank you so much. And now from London, I'm joined by my co-host, Miles Nelligan, who will be speaking to financial institutions analysts, Olivia Panisse, Antonello Aquino, and Bernhard Held about what the prolonged military conflict in Ukraine, including a possible more severe scenario, means for banks and insurance companies. Miles, welcome. Thank you, Danielle. Um, Olivier, let's start with you. Um, could you perhaps explain to our listeners, first of all, how Moody's assesses the credit impact of a prolonged conflict, uh, and in particular, how the effects would vary between uh, banks, insurers, and, and uh, other types of financial institution? Thank you, Miles. Uh, so first, we consider two scenarios, uh, our baseline macroeconomic scenario, which projects growth for G20 economies of 3.6% in 2022, that's already down from an earlier forecast of 4.3% uh, before the start of the conflict. Then we consider the downside scenario, which uh, assumes a short, sharp halt uh, in um, exports of oil and natural gas from Russia to Europe, along with a um, steep global recession and a liquidity squeeze. Okay, so you looked at how all types of financial institution would fare under each of those scenarios. Correct. We looked into the risk sensitivity for various financial institutions, such as banks, finance companies, securities firms, insurers, and asset managers under each of these scenarios. And to determine the sensitivity of each sector to the military conflict, we looked at four different channels of transmission of risk. First, a commodity price shock led by higher oil prices. Second, business disruption, mostly from prolonged supply chain holdups leading to negative impacts on GDP. The third, liquidity tightening and market volatility. And the fourth, security and operational risks. Right. So two economic scenarios and four channels of risk transmission. I assume that in the real world, uh, risk is already being transmitted along those channels. That's right. Some risks are already occurring, uh, such as slower GDP growth uh, than initially expected and higher inflationary pressures. Some other risks 
such as liquidity tightening, are rather transmitting in the downside scenario. So we created a heat map, which means we labeled each financial institution sector and region as red, amber, or green. Red is high credit sensitivity to certain risk transmission channels under both the economic scenarios. Amber is moderate credit sensitivity to certain risk under the baseline economic scenarios and high sensitivity under the downside scenario. And green is low credit sensitivity under both scenarios. Okay, uh, Olivier, I'm going to ask the obvious question. Uh, where is the red on the heat map, uh, i.e. which, which uh, of the banking sectors are highest risk in your view? Yeah, so we, we've identified, for example, banks that are uh, geographically uh, closest to the military conflict or in economies that have lots of direct ties to Ukraine uh, or Russia are most exposed to uh, spillover effects. That includes banks in the Baltics and in the Commonwealth of Independent States, CIS, which are the, the former republics of the Soviet Union. They are most exposed to spillover effects from the military conflict and have limited buffers to absorb the impact if it's prolonged. Baltic states have already a rampant inflation above 10% and a relatively high share of direct trade with Russia, even if an important part of that is re-exporting. Some CIS economies like Belarus or Armenia are highly integrated with Russian economy and some other CIS countries are highly reliant on remittances from Russia, such as the Kyrgyz Republic and Tajikistan. And what about banks that aren't highly exposed, but, but nonetheless have some sensitivity to the conflict? Yes, banks that have moderate sensitivity to the conflict are mainly European, African or Turkish. GDP impact under our downside scenario would be more severe than in other regions. Recession would weaken loan quality and reduce profitability for European banks. Asset risks are higher in uh, regions, for example, with a higher level of indebtedness, such as the Nordics or the Netherlands. Even if there are some European economies more exposed to a cut in energy supply from Russia, such as Slovakia, Hungary, or Germany, the high interlinkages among European economies make all European banking systems vulnerable to business disruption in our downside scenario. And a prolonged period of high global commodity prices would also increase asset risks of African and Turkish banks, which are also particularly exposed to liquidity and funding risks. And what's the picture looking like for non-bank financial companies? So as you know, I mean, there's a wide diversity of business models um, among finance companies, triggering uh, various degrees of risk exposures. Here, just one example. Aircraft leases face risk from higher oil prices, which would increase airfares and slow the recovery in air travel demand for leased aircraft. And a number of them also face costs associated with confiscation by Russia of leased aircraft. Okay, thanks very much, Olivier. We uh, will be talking to Antonello in just a minute about how uh, insurers and asset managers are affected by the conflict in Ukraine. Um, Before we get there, uh, just one last question. Um, Where are you not seeing so much credit sensitivity to the conflict? Uh, In other words, uh, which sectors are turning up green on your heat map? So we've identified two large regions uh, that are relatively less exposed, that's North America and, and Asia. Given the current strengths of the US and Canadian economies and relative uh, economic resilience to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we expect a low impact on North American banks' asset quality under both our baseline and downside scenarios. In Asia-Pacific, 
economic growth will be a bit weaker because of higher energy prices and slower growth in key export markets. But overall, impact on banks in both North America and Asia Pacific will be limited because of strong capital and, and the liquidity we expect to remain ample in, in those regions. I can give also a number of other sectors that have relatively limited exposure in our view to the conflict, such as U.S. auto lenders, banks in the Gulf economies, or in most Latin American countries, global investment banks or, or securities firms. Olivier, thanks again for that very clear explanation. Um, we're joined now by Antonello Aquino, who's going to talk about which sectors in insurance and asset management are most affected by the Ukraine conflict. Antonello, welcome. Thanks, Miles. Glad to be here. Um, Antonello, uh, Olivier has just been telling us which banking sectors are most and least sensitive to the military conflict. Um, what about insurers? Are any of them particularly exposed? Yes, Miles. Our view is that the non-life insurance sector has a moderate sensitivity to a prolonged military conflict in Ukraine under our baseline economic scenario, but actually high sensitivity under the downside scenario because of the risk of high inflation for a prolonged period of time. For life insurance instead, we assess the sensitivity to Ukraine crisis as relatively low. Right. So what exactly do we mean by non-life insurance and uh, how exactly will the Ukraine situation affect that industry? Non-life insurance includes property and casualty insurance uh, and reinsurance, uh, as well as trade credit insurance. So a scenario of prolonged high inflation will have two possible impacts for non-life insurers. So number one, will have a negative impact on their profit and loss. When you think of high inflation, that will clearly have an impact on claims costs for insurance companies, putting pressure on their earnings, because it's unlikely that insurance companies will be uh, able to pass the higher inflation into prices. And so they will need to absorb the high inflation on the cost, on the claim cost, and so hitting uh, the profitability. And number two, is possible impact on the balance sheet, particularly via the deficiencies in reserves. And this is true for casualty insurers because of their long duration uh, of the liabilities. And then there is another um, subsector of non-life insurance that is uh, more affected by the crisis. This is the trade credit insurers. Trade credit insurers provide insurance um, for sellers uh, against the risk of non-payment. And this is particularly vulnerable uh, to a scenario of supply chain disruption, weaker growth, and deteriorating business confidence. Right. Thank you very much, Antonello. Uh, And now, finally, we're going to bring in Bernhardt, who's going to talk about the downside scenario in a little bit more detail. And he's going to look in particular at the possibility of a sudden halt to exports of Russian oil and gas to Europe. Uh, So, Bernhard, tell me about what happens if Russia does decide to cut off all energy exports to Europe. First of all, just to clarify, this is not our baseline scenario of what will happen. It's rather an alternative downside scenario. And with that understanding, if Russia were to hold energy exports, how it would work is countries that do import a high share of their energy supply from Russia would have to start rationing energy once we get into the fall and winter. And so the heating season for households starts. And uh, how would this affect the banking sector? So this would likely lead to a fairly deep recession in Europe and then quickly also raise the risk of a global recession. The biggest impact would be on banks in European countries directly exposed 
to such energy cutoff. So the biggest importers of Russian energy, and I think Olivier mentioned Slovakia, Hungary, and also Germany as prime examples. And, and one big effect we would see here would be higher loan impairments, especially on loans to corporations and small and medium-sized enterprises. Is it only banks uh, in countries that import the most energy from Russia that would be affected in, in this downside scenario? Well, in fact, banks across the continent would be affected to varying degrees because of the linkages in the production chains and also in the trade flows. The banking systems across all European countries do have some vulnerability to severe business disruption risks under this scenario. Bernhard, I have a question about inflation and rising interest rates, which are features of both the baseline and downside economic scenarios. Could higher interest rates possibly mitigate some of banks' risk? Well, rising interest rates would support future asset yields. And that is particularly true for new business and for that part of the bank's lending books that is at variable rates or that reprises quickly. Now, fixed rate assets, however, would also lose value in the short term because of the higher rates. If we do want to focus on the strong mitigants for banks in such a downside scenario, I would rather add that they have a strong starting point with healthy capital and liquidity positions. And also, another factor to consider is that ample government support measures for consumers and businesses during the pandemic have so far helped the sector maintain strong loan book performance. I see. So at least banks are starting off from a position of relative credit strength. Bernhard, Miles, Olivier, Antonello, and Laura, thank you all very much for your insights. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you're listening to this podcast on a streaming service, please remember to follow or subscribe. And if you'd like to read any of the research referenced in this episode, you can find the reports by clicking the link to this episode at about.moody's.io slash podcasts. And please tune in again on Wednesday, May 4th for the next episode of Focus on Finance.